Our Lord, nobody knows who we are, what we have done this week, today, what's on our mind, what our hopes for the future, our fears for the future are. Nobody knows us as intimately as you do. And in that sense, we feel very safe to be in your presence because you know everything. You are absolutely aware and you look at us with deep love. Lord, you have a goal for us. It's the same goal tonight as it will be tomorrow, as it will be in the next month and years. That is to conform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. That with each day, with each step, with each Bible study, we would be more and more like the character of our Savior. And yet you, you have us to work with. Common clay. Men and women with a fallen nature, redeemed certainly, but at battle the old and the new. Lord, I pray that we would be committed to the same goal. So many of us are, that's why we come midweek as well as other times. We want to know what your word says. We want to know how to apply it. We want to know what the authors meant when they wrote it. Lord, give us a, a mind, a heart, an attention span to grasp, to dig, to look with interest at the things of the Spirit. Lord, I pray that we would, none of us, be like the natural man who doesn't understand the things of the Spirit nor give any regard to them. I pray that you would make this part of your body spiritually literate able to articulate truth, to be confident in it. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you a question. I want your hand raised if this is your desire. How many of you truly desire to serve the Lord? That's a desire of yours. You can put your hands down. You can keep them up if you want. But I tell you, that the Lord must love to see that and to see your heart your desire to serve Him. Your desire to, to grow to the extent that you become not only a willing, but a very powerful instrument in His hands. After all, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the entire earth that He might show Himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are turned toward Him, perfect toward Him, inclined to Him. You say, well... That's good and all, Skip, but I don't feel I'm qualified. In one sense, all the better. Because the more you sense that, the more you're going to want to lean on Him. See, if you feel, I'm qualified, God probably will skip over you. He's looking for the guys like Moses and Jeremiah and Timothy who had deficits in their character and thus had to lean so hard on God's strength. When I was um, very young in my spiritual walk, I wanted to serve the Lord. I wanted to be in ministry. I came to know Christ when I was 17, turning 18, and right around my 18th birthday, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I didn't know what I was getting into. I just wanted to do it. My heart was empty. I wanted something more than what I'd already experienced. That began an adventure for me that has never ended, frankly, and a thirst that has never gone away, a thirst to be used by the Lord, to be His vessel, His instrument. And so, shortly after I came to Christ in San Jose, California, I had this desire to move back down to Southern California where my family and friends were, and I knew that there was this cool church where I could be discipled and I could grow, and they would use anybody. It had that reputation. I mean, hippies were coming, and God was using them, and I thought, if God can use them, God can use me. And then I discovered, if God can use me, God can use anybody. That's the realization I've landed at. So I got involved. I got involved in a worship band in the fellowship, 
played bass. We led worship at church. Was able to get involved in evangelism. Traveled around just a little bit around the area to play music. It's all I knew how to do. Then I began teaching home Bible studies. It was great. Had a lot of fun. Sort of as an itinerant. I was living at the beach and I'd drive over to Garden Grove, inland a few miles, and I'd teach a Bible study on a Tuesday night. Then on a Wednesday night, I'd drive up to the high desert and teach a Bible study, then back. And then I'd go to San Bernardino on Friday night and teach a Bible study, drive back, having a great time. I had no idea that the ministry also had hardships. That's what Paul will talk about in this chapter, the hardships that he felt pressed in the ministry. And what kept him going? You ever wonder, Lord, you know, what is it that, that, that's going to keep me going? Endure. How can I endure in my calling? How can I endure in my ministry? And by the way, every one of you has some form of ministry. Maybe not the ministry with a capital M, but some sort of ministry, service. What kept Paul going? What keeps you going? When I picked up and came out this direction. I've told you the story. It was the old Datsun pickup truck with the U-Haul trailer that I was putting oil in every 100 miles or so because it was, it was just a beat-up old engine. We had no money. I mean, it was like the Beverly Hillbillies, but not going to Beverly Hills, leaving, going to Albuquerque. <laughs> down, 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 down. I felt like that the whole way down the road. We were newlyweds. We were married one week. Moving to a new place. Didn't know a soul. Came here, met one soul. And then two souls. Remember starting the first Bible study that we had on Thursday nights. Now people come to the church now and they go, man, what 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 a great thing you got going. That's, this is all they see. They don't remember what it was like at one time. They just come and see this building as if it just sort of happened instantly. I had no idea when I was stepping into ministry that, number one, I was giving God complete control, and number two, He could take me wherever He wanted to, whenever He felt like it. And He could let anything happen to mold and shape my life. Like the time I had my life threatened by a group of Satan worshipers. Lord, why would you allow that to happen? I mean, can't you take better care of me than that, I thought? Not knowing it was a setup. The guy, Damien, who was sort of the head of this group, called one day. I happened to be in the office. I met him at a restaurant, led him to Christ. Then I said, thank you, Lord, for that death threat. Or the evening, the guy came into the foyer with a, with a handgun and pulled it out. And the ushers brought him to the ground, took him outside. He was, he was there to kill me. I still don't know the, the reason for that one quite yet. I guess I'll have to wait until I get to heaven. But the ministry has hardships, and anybody who steps in to serve the Lord has to be up for that. Even studying the Bible itself, just, just the task of studying the Word is sometimes difficult. J. Vernon McGee, anybody remember J. Vernon McGee? We had him speak here one time, and when he was in town, I asked him before he went to heaven, I said, Dr. McGee, why is it that that churches don't teach through the whole Bible in an expository fashion? He was very frank. He was old at that time, and he could afford to be frank. (laughs) He didn't care what people thought. He said, because... Preachers are lazy. That's how he talked. He had that southern drawl. And I find that the ministry is very exacting, very demanding. I remember my mom used to say that she slaved over the hot oven all day long for the kids. And I I feel sometimes like I do that. I slave over the Word to prepare a well-balanced meal. I love it. I enjoy it. But it is exacting. In fact, when I went to get my master's degree, and people said, oh, well, that's going to be really tough, and I got into it, I found it wasn't all that tough. I'd already been doing that for years. I studied that much daily. 
Charles Spurgeon said, If you plan to be lazy, there are plenty of avocations in which you will not be wanted, but above all, you will not be wanted in the Christian ministry. The man who finds the ministry an easy life will also find that it brings a hard death. Then just staying faithful to the Word is sometimes tough. Because the Bible says certain things that some people just frankly don't want to hear. And you can see it in their faces. And they'll get up and they'll walk out. They don't want to hear it. It confronts us with us, with truth about us. And so sometimes there is a temptation for people in the pulpit to to have the Bible just sort of say something a little bit different. We we want to get around that somehow because we don't want to offend anybody. We'd rather just let them feel good all the time. One Sunday, two women approached me after a service, and they were very frank. They were angry at me. Both of them were lesbians. They were angry about my sermon. I don't know what I said. I don't think I said anything in it that would uh, betray an opinion toward that lifestyle. But one of them said, we want to ask you, what is your opinion about homosexuality? What is your opinion? What do you think about it? What do you think God thinks about it? I said, well, dear, it's highly irrelevant what I think. My opinion is of no value here. What we need to decide is what the Bible clearly says about it, not what I think about it. And she goes, well, what is the Bible? What do you think the Bible says? I said, I don't think any. I'll tell you, I know exactly what it says about it. What does it say? God loves you. He does? Yeah, God loves you. God loves every homosexual in the world. He doesn't approve of your lifestyle. That's sin as is adultery, as is thievery, as is lust of any kind. But God's willing to forgive you because he loves you with a big heart. And of course she fumed and her partner fumed and stormed out. And I know that as I go through portions of the Bible that that's going to happen. The Bible itself will do that. It's a sharp two-edged sword. We had a youth pastor at our fellowship at one time, great guy, felt led to leave the fellowship and start his own work, his own church. So we laid our hands on him, we ordained him, we knew God's spirit was on him, he was quite gifted, and we sent him out. He'd been trained, he'd been through courses, he'd studied homiletics and hermeneutics and all the other ologies and icks that there are to study. And he had experience in this fellowship as a youth pastor. But when he went out the door that night from our board meeting, I turned to the board and I said, now it begins. And they said, what do you mean it begins? I said, now his training really begins. You can only be trained so much on a staff or in a classroom. The real training is when you go out there. Now the hardships of the ministry are going to mold him. And I said, oh, I'll wait about a month, six weeks, and I'll get my first phone call from him. You just wait. And I could tell them what I think it's going to be about. What issues are going to come up early on. And sure enough, six weeks later, almost to the exact week, he called. Now, Paul the Apostle, think of that guy's life. Think of his hardships. In this book, he opens his heart more than any other of his letters and talks about his personal life and what he went through in his calling. In fact, as a preview, over in chapter 7 of this book, he says, We were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. As soon as Paul began his ministry, that happened. He was in Damascus. They didn't like what they heard him preach. And so they ran him out of town. Actually, he was let over a wall at night in a basket, a garbage basket. And that sort of marked Paul's entire life up until the day he was decapitated on the Ostian Road outside of Rome, the end of his life. How do I stay faithful to my calling? How do I endure in the Christian life? We're going to learn a few lessons in chapter 4 from what I call the unstoppable apostle. Nothing could stop this man except 
Christ. Christ was the guy who stopped him on the road to Damascus, knocked him off his horse. And the Lord Jesus Christ stopped his ministry, called him home. Paul the Apostle, Saul of Tarsus, converted as Paul the Apostle, was the ever-ready bunny of the first church. He kept going and going and going. All over the world, after afflictions and trials and beatings and prisons, he just kept going. Death threats, beatings, shipwrecks, jail time. I've often thought that maybe Paul, as soon as he got to a town, the first stop was the local jail. He may have said, could you take me to the local jail first? I'd just like to know where I'm going to spend the night tonight. (laughs) That usually became his hotel. That was his lifestyle. Yet he never compromised the message. He never stopped his ministry. In fact, think about it. Paul's ministry is still going on now. Here we are reading his stuff. There's an old saying that says, God buries his workmen, but then carries on their work. Verse 1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. We have what ministry? Well, he's been speaking in the previous chapter, remember, about the new covenant, not the Old Testament, the ministry of death and condemnation, the law. We have a whole new economy, a whole new way of God dealing with people. And God let us share in that. God commissioned us to tell the gospel, the good news, to to people in our lives so that we can become ambassadors of Christ. We have received this ministry, the ministry of the new covenant, the gospel, where Christ will freely forgive a man or a woman. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received, I love it, mercy, we do not lose heart. Notice that the first step in being faithful in whatever ministry God has called you to is to see the ministry as a merciful gift to you. It's something you receive from him. Paul said in Galatians 1, Paul, an apostle, not by men nor through man, but by the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul gathered the Ephesian pastors together in Acts 20, he said, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. It's the work of God. It's the work of the Spirit. You just didn't... Uh, raise your hand one day in school and say, I'm going to join the ministry. It's a calling God places on your life. It's an unmistakable calling. You know it. You You can't get rid of it. You can't run from it. You love it. You're addicted to it. That's a word, by the way, used in the King James Bible. Paul referred to those addicted to the ministry. Listen, if you have that addiction, I'm with you. I got it too. There's a great book that I have, and I share it with those who are wanting to enter the ministry. In fact, I require it for their reading. Lectures to My Students by Charles Spurgeon. This happens to be an old 1875 copy. But listen to what he says. All are not called to labor in word and doctrine, or to be elders, or to exercise the office of a bishop. Nor should all aspire to such works, since the gifts necessary are nowhere promised to everyone. But those should addict themselves to such important engagements who feel, like the apostle, that they have received this ministry. And he quotes this verse. No man may intrude into the sheepfold as an under-shepherd. He must have an eye to the chief shepherd and wait his beck and command. Or, ever a man stands forth as God's ambassador, he must wait for the call from above. If he does not do so, but he rushes into the sacred office, the Lord will say of him and others like him, I sent them not, neither commanded them, therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. And his reference is Jeremiah 23, verse 32. 
frankly, some people don't make it in the ministry because they're unsure that God called them there. Spurgeon says, be sure. So the question comes, well, how can you be sure? How do I know if God's called me to the ministry? Well, whatever God has called you to do, here's the great part. He equips you to do it. If you join the Air Force as a pilot, they're not going to make you buy your own jet. Quite a relief to every pilot. They furnish it for you. When God calls you to be an evangelist, He gives you a gift, the gift of evangelism, so that when you talk to people about Christ, you lead them to Christ. If God gives you or calls you to be a pastor or teacher, He'll equip you by giving you a gift of teaching so that when you speak, people will be taught. They'll understand the Scripture. They'll grow spiritually, etc. You could say that with every calling, there's a gift to match. So you can tell by the fruit. Look at the fruit under the leaves of your life. When you see that, you can establish your calling. He says, since we've received this ministry, look at the last part of that verse. We do not lose heart. Very strong word. A a better translation. We don't surrender as cowards. Isn't that great? He's saying, we're not wimps. We're not chickening out. Yeah, we've had afflictions. We've had our trials. But the message of the new covenant is too noble, too awesome, too life-changing for us to shrink back as cowards just because somebody doesn't like it. It is the power to send a person to heaven, to keep them out of hell. And so he uses a very strong word, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul was very open about his life and ministry. There was a group of people, it seems, at Corinth. We mentioned them last week. Legalistic people. Judaizers was their name. Who accused Paul of covering up. They said, well, you know, he has this very thin veneer of piety to cover up his sinful lifestyle. He's just a wicked guy. He's just covering it up with saying nice words. Listen to that verse in the Phillips translation, a very modern and expanded one. We use no hocus-pocus, no clever tricks, no dishonest manipulation of the Word of God. We speak the plain truth and so commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul is alluding to the fact that he's not the crafty one. He's not living under a thin veneer of piety, but they are. The legalists are. The Judaizers are. That group of people who is accusing Paul to the Corinthian church. I'm not doing it. Those guys are doing it. They're deceitful. They were accusing Paul of preaching a watered-down gospel. We can infer this by looking at all the different texts in First and Second Corinthians. They said, well, you know, Paul, he's this guy who speaks about grace and you can just get saved by believing in Jesus Christ. And, and that's really not true. What he's doing is covering over the law, you see, the Old Testament. You've got to keep that. And Paul was, in a sense, accusing them of covering over God's grace by the law of Moses. He's saying, we've handled the scriptures rightly. We've displayed truth openly, on display. And everyone who is an open-minded listener will pick that up. That brings up a question. How do you know that somebody is handling the word of God correctly, without deceit, purely? As he mentions here, we're we're not walking in craftiness. We, We haven't handled the word of God deceitfully. How can you tell? You see, anybody can quote scripture. I hear people all the time. I hear congressmen and senators and unbelievers and rock stars. Everybody quotes scripture. And it's funny is that the Christian church gets all excited every time somebody mentions God or Jesus or the scripture. Oh, listen, they're believers. Anybody can do that. But there's a way that you can tell when somebody says something, if it's deceitful or not. There is a study, and we're not going to deep 
dig deep into it, called hermeneutics, or, or simply put, the science of interpreting the Bible. And there's like a five-fold principle with any text of Scripture. Rule number one, you always interpret the text in the light of its context. What stuff is written around that text to determine what it says? Number two, you always interpret a text of Scripture in light of the meaning of the words themselves. What does that word mean? Look it up in a dictionary, a Bible dictionary. Third principle, always interpret the text in light of the grammar of the sentence. Fourth principle, always interpret a text according to its background. What's going on at the times? What was the local custom, etc.? And then fifth, you always interpret every text in the light of the unity of Scripture, what the rest of the Bible says. If you do that with every text, you'll have a reasonably accurate interpretation of every text of Scripture. None of this nonsense, well, that's just your interpretation. There are certain issues, I will grant, that are disputable, debatable issues because there's a lot of different texts involved and principles involved. But for the most part, you can come with a straightforward interpretation of the text. And you can tell if other people are in it to manipulate and get something from you or they're just feeding you. So he commended himself to the conscience of his hearers as he made the truth manifest or plain. But even if our gospel is veiled, verse 3, it is veiled to those who are perishing, dying. Now Paul had just got through finish saying he had nothing to hide, but he was into manifesting the truth. However, not everyone will get it. When you speak the gospel, when you speak the truth, some people listen and, and their reaction is, huh? I don't get it. I don't see it. And Paul is saying, in that case, when you make it clearly presented and it's manifest openly, the fault isn't the message's fault. The fault isn't the messenger's fault. The fault lies on the hearer who's blinded to the truth, as he will say in the next verse. Now look at in, um, in this verse, he says, the gospel is veiled. Do you remember last week's study? It's a metaphor Paul used. He's sort of moving his metaphors around here. Back in chapter 3, verse 13, he talks about Moses' face being veiled so the children of Israel couldn't see. In chapter 3, verse 15, he says the hearts of the children of Israel are veiled when they read the Old Testament. They don't get it. And now the hearts or the minds of unbelievers are veiled to the meaning of the gospel. There is a scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you remember it. I, I just quoted it a second ago. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit. They are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Now in that text of scripture, Paul gives us the characteristics of unbelievers when it comes to spiritual matters. And answers a lot of our questions. Why is it when I talk to my, my family... They have this reaction, or my friends, they, they have this horrible reaction, or this look on their face like I'm a zombie or an alien or something. Because the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. I'm not interested in them. You talk about spiritual matters, don't need it, man. Not interested. I've got real life to live, not metaphysical nonsense. They don't receive it. There's no conviction in their hearts. There's no need that they sense for righteousness. They have no concern for future judgment and facing the wrath of God. This, they don't get it. He goes on to say in that verse I just quoted, they are foolishness unto him. Foolishness, meaninglessness, hocus pocus, nonsense. Oh man, this idea of heaven, hell. That's just so bogus, man. It's made up, stupid. Foolish. Remember when Paul stood before King Agrippa in Acts and he started talking about his testimony and his life before the world and he talked about Jesus Christ and he said these things weren't done in a corner. Everybody here knows. And Jesus Christ, he said, rose from the dead. Then Festus, one of the guys in charge, one of the leaders, stood up, interrupted Paul and he said, Oh, Paul. You are beside yourself. Your much learning has made you mad. 
You're nuts. It's foolishness unto him. It says, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, there's some insight. An unsaved person cannot get it because they lack the ability. And so you and I get so frustrated with them. And and it's like we want to shake them. Don't you get it, man? Don't you see? Here's the problem. They don't see. That's like telling a blind person, "Don't, don't you see that sunset? Or a deaf person, can't you hear that orchestra? They can't. They lack the capability to apprehend. Somebody who is spiritually dead can't get it unless the Spirit of God awakens their heart. And there is the issue of man's free will and God's sovereign choice, and they do work together. But here's the point. The preacher cannot persuade people. God does. And that should take a load off your back. Somebody said to me, Oh, Skip, you saved me a couple years ago. I say, Well, that's your problem. Because I can't save anybody. So if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds, notice, the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Who is the God of this world? Satan. He's the God of this age, the God of this world, the world system. The world system that's hostile to the values of the kingdom of God. Now, there are similar titles to the devil in the scriptures. Jesus in John 12 calls him the prince of this world. In John 14 calls Satan the ruler of this world. Paul in Ephesians 2 calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. And then John in 1 John chapter 5 said this, the whole world, listen to this, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Is it possible for the whole world to be wrong? Yep. They are, said John. The whole world system, apart from those who are enlightened by the Spirit of God, are all wrong. They're lying under the sway of the wicked one. He's the God of this world. Not that he's a God in a dualistic sense, that you have the God and then a God, but simply he is regarded as God. Or better yet, he is worshipped as God unconsciously by this world. Because the value system of the devil, the goals of the devil, the ideals of the devil are shared by the majority of people in this world. That's why Satan is called the God of this age. And notice, he blinds people. That's, that's his business. What do you do for a living, Satan? I, I blind people. I make them insensate, blind, unable to see their own spiritual condition, their need for salvation, the reality of how things are around them. I blind them to all that. Something else. Notice... It's the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That's a powerful verse. One of the things Satan blinds people to, the primary thing, is the character and nature of Jesus. Here it says the glory of Jesus, the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. One of the main themes of the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus is the image, the icon, the exact representation of God. God the Son, God in human flesh, the uniqueness of Christ. This is key because it tells us you can't believe anything about Christ and be saved. And so we get all excited. Did you hear that rock star? He mentioned God. He mentioned Jesus. Whee! What does he say about him? Who is he? Does he just wear a little necklace with a cross and a fish and mention God bless you? What does he say about Jesus? Satan blinds people from the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, lest it should shine on them. Remember Jesus said to the um, leaders in John chapter 8, very powerful and um, discriminating statement. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am, 
you will die in your sins. That seems to be what he is saying in this verse. Verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Now, if Paul would have preached himself, probably a lot more people would have liked him. If Paul would have centered everything on himself and how great humanity is and we're all good, and you're, he would have gotten along with everybody. But because he was so singular, he preached Jesus Christ only. And he said to the Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, when I was among you, I was determined not to know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, it seems that some Judaizers had a habit of talking about themselves a lot. Beware of those who do. Beware of those who use the pulpit and just sort of talk about their works and their ministry and their goodness rather than Christ. I frankly think some churches preach themselves and not Christ. I've heard it like this. Well, you need to be baptized by our church or you're not saved. You need to belong to our church. Don't leave our church because this is the only true church. How about there's only one true Christ and be related to Him, not to a system. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul compares the conversion of a sinner to the creation of the world when light was called forth. And just as God spoke, let there be light, and it was. Here it is, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God hovered over the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So just as the Spirit of God hovered or moved over the waters in creation, and light came forth, the Spirit of the living God moves over an individual at salvation, causing that person to feel a need, causing that person to come forward, or to raise a hand, or to ask a friend a question. It's that spiritual hunger that we have. Now, I read this verse, and I couldn't help but thinking of Paul's own conversion on the Damascus Road. He may have had that in mind, you know, because he was merrily going down the street to Damascus, Christian hunting, as it were, and he got knocked off of his horse on the ground, a bright light shone, and Jesus spoke through the light and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. It could be that he had that in mind. But you also know in the Bible, darkness and light are spiritual metaphors. Darkness is immorality, sin, ignorance of God. Light is the knowledge of God, righteousness, truth. Paul said, God called you out of, or Peter said, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Many years ago, there was an age called the Age of Enlightenment, as opposed to the Dark Ages. Every age of man is dark. And every man is in darkness and every woman is in darkness until they've been enlightened, not by the knowledge of science, but by Jesus Christ. Verse 7, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. An earthen vessel is a pot, a clay pot. Back in those days, they used pots to store stuff in. Just like you have Tupperware, they had clay pots. So you, you might want to say, we have this treasure in Tupperware, if you want to modernize it. But they would put valuables in a clay pot. They would put water in a clay pot, food stuff in a clay pot, even garbage in clay pots. They had different vessels in the house, vessels of honor, vessels of dishonor, to store stuff. This verse tells us the true nature of the message of the gospel in comparison to the true nature of the messenger of the gospel. The treasure is the gospel. The person who proclaims it is the pot. That's all we are, clay pots. But God has condescended himself to put his glorious message, life-changing message, in clay pots. So that the glory of the excellence may be of the Lord, not of us. You know, I think whenever 
God's servants are magnified. They ought to feel very shaky and embarrassed. Now here's this wonderful pot. This earth, dirt, clay pot. Isn't he a wonderful pot? Forget the pot. What's the pot carrying? The treasure of the gospel. So we have this treasure in clay pots, earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may not be of God, may be of God and not of us. I had a gal come up to me on Sunday, very sweet, very gracious gal, and, and she just said, Skip, I really love your ministry. I just hope you'll never leave this church. You won't leave, will you? And I said, well, to be honest with you, I, I can't promise you that. But you know what? If a church loses a pastor, if, if I leave or if I die, you lost a pot. In this sense, a crack pot. Here's what we have to remember. The message, the treasure, transcends the messenger. The message is greater. I hear from time to time, well, this church let go of this pastor. So what? Message hadn't changed. The glory of the gospel hasn't changed. So what? God's work will still go on. Because God is always in the habit of looking for foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Clay pots. Why? That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. God uses frail pots so that when anything cool gets done, anything of lasting value, you go, that was God. That was God. You know why God chooses weak, feeble vessels, the foolish things of this world? Because if you use just the noble and the great and the intelligent all the time, people go, well, no wonder the ministry is flourishing. I mean, look at that person. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> but then when God uses an old, beat-up, crackpot, weathered, worn, flaky, and something awesome gets done, you go, you know what? I know that guy. It has to be the Lord. <laughs> Trust me. This is a God thing. God did not do this because of him. God did it in spite of him. It's very much like after the resurrection when Peter was fishing with his buddies and they fished all night and caught nothing. And Jesus, they didn't know it was Jesus, was on the shore and said, Children, you got any bread or got any food? He said, No, we fished all night, haven't caught anything. Just throw your nets on the other side of the boat. They didn't know it was Jesus, so they did it. And so many fish got into the net, it was almost breaking. And then Peter knew it was the Lord. It's the Lord, he said. And when you look at a work of God, and the nets are so full, there's not enough room to contain the fish, you say, it's the Lord. And that's the glory that God wants to get. He didn't want to share his glory with anybody. We are hard-pressed on every side. Listen to Paul's life yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Four pictures of Paul's ministry in verse 8 and 9. To demonstrate, to show that weakness, problems, trial, didn't stop him, strengthened him. I went through Acts today looking at, at, at Paul's ministry. Let me just give you a little capsule form of it. In Damascus, the Jews counseled, this is his first week he's been saved now, the Jews counseled to kill him, so they had to throw him over the wall in a basket. In Antioch, he uh, had the influential Jews of the city boot him out of town. In Jerusalem, the church attacked the gospel of grace, Acts chapter 15, the gospel he preached. In Lystra, he was stoned. They thought he was dead. He got up and did it again. In Philippi, he got beaten up and thrown in jail. An earthquake got him out. In Athens, he was mocked as an idiot. In Corinth, he was forced out of town. In Ephesus, there was a riot. Remember, they shouted for a couple hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. In Jerusalem temple, when he finally got to where he wanted to go, they arrested him sent him to Caesarea, and then to Rome. And yet Paul got up and kept doing it. And if you were to interview Paul, 
he would have said, man, it's worth it. I am willing to face death because when I face death, I can preach the gospel of life to people. I might die physically. I'll carry the dying body of the Lord Jesus, metaphorically, as it were, so that my message of the life-changing gospel can go to other people and they'll live forever. It was worth it. William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, had the spirit of Paul in him. He said, Some men's passion is for gold. Some men's passion is for art. Some men's passion is for fame. But my passion is for souls. That was Paul's passion. And he didn't care who liked it or not. He just kept at it. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Notice how Paul marries the principle of of life and death, that life comes out of death. We live by that principle, by the way. Um, I don't know what you had for your last meal, but may have been a chicken or a cow or a fish. They died for you. You live because of their death. That principle of life coming out of death is something we live by all the time. And so Paul was willing to face even death so that spiritual life may arise. There's an old saying that says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And if you noticed in history, the more a church is persecuted, the stronger it becomes. The bigger it becomes, the greater it becomes, the greater its witnesses. One of the things you probably can expect in the next several years in America is more persecution. I'll predict it. I'll, I'll go on record as predicting it's going to happen. I can almost guarantee it. Now that's going to be a very trying thing, but it's going to be a very good thing because it's going to purify the church. What you're going to see happen is nominal Christians, Christians in name only, won't come anymore, won't be involved anymore, won't name the name of Christ. It'll be too difficult for them. But then you'll also see a stronger church because the cream rises to the top. Those who will endure and love the Lord Jesus through anything will comprise together a very strong and unified body. So the more you persecute the true church, the stronger it becomes. Acts chapter 8. It says, there arose a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem and they were scattered in Judea and Samaria and those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. It just grew. They kept going. And it got stronger. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. Paul's quoting Psalms, Psalm 116. He's drawing a principle out from the Psalms, and now you see how Paul uses the Scripture. In Psalm 116, the psalmist was facing adversity, trial, tribulation. He said, the pangs of death encompassed me. But in the same Psalm, he speaks by faith. He says, Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with thee. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits? I'll take up the cup of salvation, I'll bless the Lord, I'll render thanks to him. And he uses this line that Paul quotes I believed and therefore I spoke. Here's Paul's point. All of the bad stuff that has happened to me in my life has not sealed my lips. I'm still going to preach the gospel. And he spoke boldly and repeatedly. How? Why? What was his secret? Verse 14. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. What was Paul's hope? Resurrection. So they kill me. That's the worst they can do? So I die physically? One day I'll be raised even as Jesus was raised and every believer will be raised? I'll live forever. So if that's the worst they can do to me, who cares? And he lived by that. 
Man, when he was in Ephesus on the way to Jerusalem, they started weeping, saying, Paul, please don't go. They're going to kill you in Jerusalem. Paul said, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? I'm not only ready to go to Jerusalem, I'm ready to die for the Lord Jesus. None of these things move me. Neither do I count my life dear unto myself that I might finish my race with joy and the ministry which I've been given by the Lord Jesus. So what? For all things are for your sakes, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart. Same phrase. For even though our outward man is perishing, our inward man is being renewed day by day. Your outward man, your physical body, is wearing out. Have you noticed that lately? (laughs) The pot is going to pot. (laughs) But, here's the great thing about being a Christian, is that while you're Outward man, the physical body, wears daily, gets older, gets grayer, more wrinkly, weaker, stiffer. Your spiritual person, the new man, the inner man, can actually get stronger and stronger and stronger. You can actually mature and be more mature, stronger, more fit spiritually, even though your body is wasting away. You can have a great impact, a great ministry, regardless of your physical condition. Great news. Michelangelo said, the more the marble wastes, the more the statue grows. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working out for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Did did you pick up on Paul's phraseology? What did he call his heavy trials? A light affliction. Now keep in mind what Paul had gone through. Keep in mind, this is the guy who goes to jail, gets beat up, and has death threats all the time. Even got beat up and they thought he was dead. But he got back up and went into Lystra and preached again. He calls all that a light affliction. And what is he doing? He's he's putting it on the scales of eternity. And he calls what most of us would call a heavy trial. He calls it a light affliction. Why? Because it's temporary. And what is he weighing? What's on the other side of the scales? Notice, an eternal weight of glory. You know, I've noticed something about some of us. Some of us make a mountain out of a molehill. It's a little thing, and it's, it's to us because it is us, after all. Huge. Listen to our hyperbole, even. Man, I'm starving to death. Go to India once, you'll never say that phrase again. Oh man, this this job is killing me. I don't think so. It's giving you a paycheck. But Paul was in the habit of taking mountains and making molehills out of them. Making them smaller, minimizing them. It's a very light affliction. It's momentary as compared to eternity. While we do not look at the things which are seen, now you get the secret of how he could do it, how he could endure in the ministry, what kept him going. We look at, do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Endurance is based on your ability to look beyond the temporary into the eternal. Endurance is your ability to look beyond the physical to the spiritual. Paul always did that. What kept Paul going? His focus, his vision. It seems that Paul saw himself as a vagabond traveling through this world, not as a permanent resident. This is just a stopover. That's why he could use the kind of language he did about his own life. John Henry Jowett referring to this verse, wrote this, to be able to see the first, the things which are seen, is sight. To be able to see the second is insight. The first mode of vision is natural. The second mode is spiritual. The primary organ 
In the first discernment is intellect, the primary organ, and the second discernment is faith. Paul had sight, but then he had insight. He saw past the circumstances, past the affliction, past the momentary trouble with great insight, great faith, great discernment. Moses was like that. It says in Hebrews 11, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather, listen carefully what he chose, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Did you hear that? Did you hear what Moses gave up? He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He gave up status. He gave up wealth. He gave up uh, royalty, heir to the throne. Gave it all up. And giving that up, a definite choice, he made a choice for something else. I don't want royalty. I don't want fame. I don't want status. I want to suffer affliction with the people of God. Moses, what, are you nuts? You're going to give up all of that and and choose instead affliction? (laughs) Man, you've got to be nuts. The reason he made the choice is in this text, just like what Paul just wrote. For he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. From a worldly standpoint, he sacrificed everything and got nothing. From a spiritual standpoint, he sacrificed nothing to gain it all. Here's the bottom line. The very worst that God has for you is better than the very best the world has for you. The devil holds out the apple. He says, come on, get this. I'll promise you this, that, fame, relationships, this. I'll give it all to you. God says, I'll give you everlasting life. I'll give you real peace, real joy. It might cause you to suffer. Because it's a value system the world doesn't share. It will be the exact opposite thinking of the world. You want to join? I don't know. That's going to hurt. That's going to be suffering. That's going to be miserable. Well, it's momentary. If it is, if you do suffer, it's for a little period of time, and then you go to heaven. As opposed to having all that the world has to offer and ending up in hell. I don't know. It's a pretty easy choice for me. Pretty open and close. It just depends where your view, you will endure based upon what you see. Lord, I pray that we would see eternity tonight. Moses did it. Paul did it. Almost everyone we read in the scripture who lived a righteous life did it. But Lord, this world is strong because the God of this world is very clever. He has studied humanity for thousands of years. He knows what makes us tick. He knows what appeals to the base nature. And he's got a scheme for every individual to keep us apart from Christ, to magnify ourselves. Lord, we live in a culture that constantly looks at what is seen, talks about body consciousness, Lord, I pray that we, your people, would realize the true treasure, true riches, come in a relationship with Christ. There is a depth of satisfaction that nothing else comes even close to. Lord, you've given each of us a ministry. We saw the hands. Nearly everyone in this room has said, I want to serve the Lord. It's great, Lord, to be your vessel. 
But in being your vessel and in speaking the truth and in trying to win others to Jesus, we know that people in our family and our friends may not understand and may call us names or, or shun our company, misunderstand us. We may not get the job. We may not be promoted. We may be excluded from meetings. And the time may come where it may get much worse. I pray, Father, we would see all of that as a light affliction, a momentary one. What you have planned for us, that eternal weight of glory, it weighs so much. Open our eyes, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.